Hi. Thank you so much for the invitation uh, to Australia. It's been a long, long dream. And also, I received many invitations before to come, but it was so far that I was scared of the 20-hour flight, three days flight. So I went to Japan, and I was like, oh, it's next door. So yeah, I can go now. So <laughs> well, thank you so much. I want to acknowledge Hannah Matthew, Monash, and all the institutions like this one, Emma, who are hosting me. Um, well, I met some artists yesterday, and I say, what should I talk about <laughs> tomorrow? Um, I have so much work, I had like 200 slides, no worries. I'm only going to put 40 today. <laughs> but, uh, so we were talking and they were saying, why don't you talk about the latest piece at the Tate? So I'm going to start with that. Um, and then maybe in the Q&A, and maybe show one or two other pieces, and then maybe in the Q&A we can talk about something else if you want. So, yeah, this is one of my declarations. <laughs> So um, I, I feel that art is um, a device by which to generate certain things. I also believe in the idea that art um, gives us some energy and we are responsible to do something with that energy. So um, in that sense, a lot of people say art can change the world. I was one of the people saying that for a long time. But I confess that I said it because nobody was saying it, so I was saying it very strong, so at least somebody started thinking about it. But now that people are saying it more, I want to say that art can only change the world if we as viewers take that energy and do something with it. So, okay. So today I'm going to um, talk about the commission for the Tate um, Turbine Hall. Um, this is, of course, the dream of any artist, but as soon as I tell you you have it, you are very scared. <laughs> and you're like, why did I want this? I, I cannot do anything. And then uh, the first thing I did was, was looking at every other previous commission. I like some history, not too much to be scared, but just a little bit enough to know. So um, I realized that everything has been done already. <laughs> Uh, so it was very challenging. And then I, one day I step into the Tate and, and look at it and say, this is so beautiful. The space itself is so beautiful. And I say, well, I don't want to populate the space with anything but the institution itself. So I did this um, piece where I wanted everything to be invisible. So actually, it might be the first time I hope project where it's about being invisible so people don't see the work and my idea was that people arrive and were like where is the work because it's not uh, revealing itself right away so when you arrive the first thing you see is this shiny floor if you have never been there you think that's the normal floor um, and what I wanted is the fact that it reflects um, the building so you can see the building and the ref reflection of the building Another element that was incorporated very well into the in, uh, structure of the building was these um, uh, loudspeakers, very potent loudspeakers. They were generating um, a sound that was inf an infrasound that was all across the, um, the space of the turbine. Um, 
where, again, you didn't see it, you didn't see where it come from, but you felt it. So you felt these kind of things in your body where the more you approach to that, that place, the more uneasy you felt and you don't know why. Um, of course, younger generation know better. So some people really, really wanted to be next to the, to the speakers once they realized they were speakers and, and feel it more strongly. Um, that part of the project was done in collaboration with uh, Code 9, which is a quite well-known uh, DJ um, in, in England. And he also studied all the technology used in the military with sound to torture people, so we used some of that knowledge to generate the sound. Um, another element that for me is very important in the piece is the title. The title changes every day. So it's the first piece I've done where it has no stable title. So the title is generated every day out of a uh, formula coming out of a stable number, which is the amount of people who move in the world the year that year or the year before, plus a changing number, which is the amount of people who are recorded dying every day trying to migrate. So it was, um, for me, a tactic, let's say, for people and journalists and, and whoever was interested in the piece to go back. If they wanted to talk about the piece, they have to go back to this website from the um, IOM and look at how many people they have died that same day or the day before. Um, Parenthesis, the reason I used the I on my um, website was because nobody contests the UN so much, but I do feel that the number is quite low because they only receive and accept information from um, uh, government institutions, and we all know how governments don't like to show real numbers, right? So it is a very conservative number. That's my kind of contradiction myself with the piece because I wanted to show the reality, but reality is always uh, codified through all these uh, small processes of erasure. So, yeah. So, um, the title was announced through uh, a stamp that was put in your hand. Uh, when you enter a little space that you don't also see, when you arrive you don't see it, but it's in the corner. And it is a space where you enter and it's a small white room and all of a sudden you start crying, and you don't know why. And it is because we have put these um, chemicals in the air that of course are safe and everything. I had to go to health and safety. Like yesterday I, I saw Richard Bell who is doing a project at the TED that say, be friends with health and safety first, <laughs> then the creators, <laughs> because those are hard. Um, so, so it's a place where you arrive with this number in your wrist and you cry for no reason. And the idea I had with this part of the work is that the real situations are invisible because so many people are trying to erase reality at this moment. So many people are trying to alter truth. And also, I wanted, especially in this room, um, for people to cry because I wanted people to try empathy for others, you know. Usually you put someone a number in the wrist, you tell them what the number is, they won't cry. 
It's just another event. So this is part of my critique I had in the project, which is we are in a culture of event, an event-driven culture at the moment, which means that we don't take commitment with anything, mostly, um, and that things, and this is why, because for a long time I thought, why serious art is not taken seriously? Because a lot of artists are doing very impressive, serious art projects, but they're not taken serious. And then I realized, of course, people are in this kind of event uh, mind, set of mind, which you come, have an experience, leave, have another experience, leave, and every other experience has to be more funny or more intense than the previous one. So you don't process, you just um, expose your body to feel without uh, thinking, you know. So in this case, I wanted the opposite. I wanted people to stay there and cry and think why they are crying and see the reaction of people. Um, and it's also, I always say that it's my piece about social media because in social media you have this kind of uh, attitude that you have to like things because it's the correct way. But are you really feeling for those things? What are you really doing other than clicking, you know? So, yeah. So back to the space. So this is a space. Um, the space had was uh, covered actually with this um, uh, plastic floor, um, and also had been covered with this um, uh, thermal ink, thermochromic ink, meaning that is an ink that react to heat. So basically, the whole floor of the Tate was painted that way. So if you walk, you don't interact with the work. You have to go on your knees and start interacting with the work. So one of the biggest challenges I had is in the era of uh, Instagram, where everybody is like, you know, posing in front. I wanted to do a piece that was not possible or very hard to be in Instagrammable, like I want to anti-Instagram artwork, and uh, and I think I succeeded because a lot of people put images on Instagram, but there were images that are like this one, which it doesn't look at themselves; it's look more at the reaction on the floor, but also like this, which look like someone has died or something like that. So I think I really like that um, it is an anti-Instagram in a way. Uh, or at least the images that the piece is generating are not the happy, happy, like, oh, I'm here having fun. So it was more, you know, uh, yeah. So basically, this is the space where uh, the main activity happened. Everything was uh, with that, that ink. But in this case, I, uh, I um, create a kind of a special space. Um, where underneath there was a photo of a person. So what I like is that in the UK, if you've done, gone there, you know that London is the last place where you want to do anything temperature related because the one day is hot, the next day is cold. It was very unstable. We went back five years in everyday uh, casting to know what temperature, what time of the day to, because to make sure that ink reacts. And it was interesting that some days 
it looked like this, so it was completely uh, covered. Someday the piece revealed itself because it was hotter. So it was very beautiful that some days a thing happened. The other thing that for me was very important is the image can only be seen from above. So if you are on the floor and you are doing the work, you don't see what you're doing. And the only way you can have um, that piece reveal completely is if at least 200 people work together. And for me, that was the message, this idea that right now we are pissed off with a lot of people and with each other, but only if we work together, we can see what's happening and we can reveal something. One thing that for me was very interesting is, interested at is, big portraits are only done for important people. Like you have kings, you have heroes, you have, in socialist time, you have all these heroes, in capitalist time, you have all these brands, you know, uh, which are also kind of portraits. But I was very interested to have a portrait of someone that was not maybe considered important, have at this scale. So, so this is, uh, Joseph, and I will tell you uh, in a minute how I choose him uh, for the portrait. That's Joseph. And the way we did the portrait is it was dot. So when it's huge, it was, uh, oh, that's the other clip. So it was 16 meters by 27. So it was really, really big. So the reason of doing these kind of dots is to first of all look like, like old uh, um, media photos, but also so when you see it, when you reveal it, you can have maybe a dot. So the dots were the size of, like they were very big. Now is the one, let me see. There you go, sorry. So yeah, so how I arrived to this person is by uh, meeting with a group of people from the neighborhood. When I first arrived to this idea that I, I look at the institution, I say I want the institution to reflect on itself, the question I asked myself was, what is, um, is it possible for a very important international museum like Tate Modern to also be important for its, its neighbors? Because what we have uh, normally in the arts is that museums are very important for us and they're very important across the world, but then the people next door don't even enter those places, even when they're for free. So I wanted to challenge the institution with the project um, to think, are you also a community museum? Are you also for the people next to you? And I decided to go with the help of some of the people at the Tate who already work with neighbors, and then they invited all the people. So we created a group of Tate neighbors who are still running and, and going on. And um, I met with them every week for four and a half months. And we discussed how can this museum be yours? How can you feel reflected in the museum? How can this place belongs to you? And as you can see, the people are very varied in the group, in age, race, uh, culture, and uh, religion, etc. And uh, 
after many, many months, we decided that one of the things that bothered us the most, or them the most, was the fact that there was part of the museum called Blavadnik, which is this Russian billionaire who gave around 100 million pounds to, have the, to finish the building and then therefore the name of the building. And then um, we start talking about um, contribution. What does it mean to contribute in art this day? And what are people doing to um, jump uh, ahead and not doing the work that normally is required for people to be recognized uh, in institutions, but they paying instead of doing the work? So many, many years ago, people were amazing. And because everybody loved them, they put names their name in buildings, now people pay for it. So nothing wrong with doing that, but we think it should not be the only way. So we actually decided that what we wanted to do is to change the name of one of the two buildings. The Tate has two towers. One was named after this uh, oligarch from Russia, and the other one had the old name, Boiler House, no name. So we decided to change the name we did a series of meetings for proposing who should be the person and to um, actually um, vote very democratically. And we choose Natalie Bell. Natalie Bell is uh, here. She's the one next to me uh, in the middle. And Natalie Bell is a community organizer who for more than 25 years have saved the life of a lot of kids at risk in the neighborhood. So we wanted to, to bring back the idea of contribution as not only money, but as social contribution. Um, so we actually, to be honest, never thought this will happen. <laughs> we proposed it to the institution, and we were like, this is not going to happen. Let's think of plan B, because it's not going to happen. And then it was very funny, because a lot of things happened in the institution. First of all, um, I was not only working with the curator, I was working the same level of decision with the educational department. So for me, it was important that the two head of you know, departments were working together. Um, and things happen very funny because, for example, the development um, department was not happy at all. They just lost 100 million pounds, <laughs> kind of. And they were not happy at all. And they came to talk to me. I say, I'm sorry you didn't see it before. <laughs> you had it there for many years. Why you didn't do it? I don't know. So I was like, sorry. Um, but uh, also something very funny happened, which is that I heard that some of the, the staff were not happy about changing the name again. We didn't say who the person was until the very end, because we didn't want to. It was a surprise for everybody. Um, and they didn't want, they're like, oh, we cannot do it, we are too much job, you know, like this kind of like, I don't know how you say in English, but like, you put your hands down as a protest, like, you don't protest verbally, but you just like, don't do it. And then, um, and then they explained who the person was. And in like three days, everything moved and everything was done. Like, the, the staff was really into it. And actually, the staff has been the one telling the director they don't want to remove it. So now they're doing the opposite. They say, we have to remove it. Oh, we don't have time, we have money, like using the same. So it's very interesting that now the director had emailed me saying that they're going to stay for another year. 
So this is, this is also the kind of work that I like because it means it's talking to people uh, desire in a way. So this is us very happy after, <laughs> after this yeah, happened. Another element was also the, the internet. So we wanted uh, to have people, uh, when they connect to the Wi-Fi of the Tate, this appear. Like you say, we are interested in you, and then we had our kind of, uh, kind of a group statement saying what we wanted people to do with their time, how we wanted them to contribute to local and neighbor initiatives, um, whether with time, with support of any kind. So the thing is that the piece is uh, invisible all the time, but at the same time it's trying to enter through different um, moments. So either if you have, it's almost like a fragmented piece, which they always tell you not to do that at the turbine, because you need the one thing everybody can see very clearly. But I, I wanted to take the chance to have a fragmented um, piece where you can only understand you have seen the whole, um, the whole project. Another thing is because the floor was kind of invisible, we invited a lot of artists to, to use it for protest um, for different um, events, uh, different uh, issues, yeah. So, yeah. So, what is art for me? Um, I come from this place, this is Cuba, and uh, I come from an era, now it's different, but I come from an era where I was one of those people in there, so I was invisible. Um, and also I had no way to stop anything because this mass of millions of people is impossible to confront in a way. And um, I also think that I come from a country where we are all performers, uh, starting with Fidel, who was a great performer, uh, and following us, who were almost his, uh, the material for his performances, you know. So maybe this is why I'm always interested in the idea of power. Um, in this case, it's a piece I did um, where um, I, I literally instructed the mounted police to use all the techniques they use to corral people um, in, with the audience of the Tate. I don't work in other places, but the Tate has always been very good to me. I do good work there, so, um, so yeah, these are examples. And for me, it was very interesting when I did the piece to see how submissive were people to, to this authority, who are really just people in horses. Um, but at the same time, I also felt uh, I never like to work with actors unless I do a theater play um, because I also see the moments where things like, for example, one of the people didn't want to follow the action, only one, on all the days we did it, and you could see that the policeman immediately becoming a policeman. Like his body is trained to respond to this kind of insubordination. And how he actually pushed the horse, it was quite intense, like he pushed that person with the horse into a corner, and I was like, wow, this is why an actor would not work here. Why? Because I always like working with people's um, um, emotional labor um, um, history, you know. And of course, I can never, ever 
have this achieved, which is a million people in demonstration. But I try in 2014 to, um, when Obama and, um, and Raul sit down after four months of secretive meetings and inform that they will reestablish the relation, we were all very happy. But at the same time, we were more afraid and happy or anything, like the real feeling. Yeah, basically, we were all in awe, meaning we could not act. We were surprised. A lot of the discontent was that they did not acknowledge the previous historical, political life that we have to endure because these two countries were not friends. And it was just like, ta-da, we start over and forget about everything else. And then I personally had a lot of questions, so I wrote a letter, uh, fantasy letter to Obama, the Pope, and Raul, and say, hey, what about this? Like, what about, what are we going to do when Coca-Cola comes here and there is no job and there is no, like all of these questions. Um, and then I put it, I showed it to a friend, this friend put it on the Facebook and in, four days or so, we had 20,000 Cubans in Facebook discussing in the page the future of Cuba. That is unheard of. That was the first time. I think this is maybe the first internet piece in Cuba, in a way. And um, it was interesting because I always work with the bodies and with performers. So this is a, a kind of like the silent body that we had for so many years because a lot of people had already moved out of Cuba and they were like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. And this was the first time they engaged politically again. And they were from all kind of ranges of politics. Um, so I think it was a very unique. And then at the end of the letter I say, you should do Tatling Whisper 6 again in the Revolution Square. Tatling Whisper is a piece I did where I put the microphone, I invited people to come and talk, whatever they wanted for a minute. So I wanted to do it now, instead of in an institution, I wanted to do it in the streets, in the Revolution Square. Of course, it might not change the world, but it can change your political behavior. That's as much as I can aspire to maybe uh, with art. But what happened is that a lot of people came. Um, there were four very distinctive groups, which is journalists, um, artists, dissidents, and um, this group, nobody knew who they were, which were actually the secret police. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very funny because it was an international curator who was there who is from Germany. He knew nothing about Cuba. And he just arrived because he heard I'm going to do a performance. And then he went to the group of this beautiful man. <laughs> and the other people were like, come here, you're in the wrong group. So apparently it was uh, interesting that these are the kind of elements of our reality that were revealed uh, in the space. So unfortunately, unfortunately, it did not happen the way it was planned. But for me, it did happen. Because for me, political art is to create political situation. Meaning, um, the way I do political art is by creating a situation that politician has to get involved in, but also citizen have to decide about. So it's not me in my studio deciding what to do and having a conclusion. It's more about um, 
creating a situation that is not solved or resolved. So I put the elements for something to happen. I don't have the outcome. I don't want to decide this is right, this is wrong. No, anybody should behave in the way they most honestly they think they should do it instead of performing socially. So that's why for me um, it's a political situation because when people take out their learned social behavior, then you are yourself, then confrontation start. Of course, the peace unfortunately did not go well. 83 people were uh, in prison, including myself. And then what happened in one of the interrogation sessions for me was very interesting. Um, the, one of the interrogators told me in a very naive way by heart the text from Wikipedia of how Vladimir Tatlin was. And it was kind of weird because it was like, Vladimir Tatlin, 18, da 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 like, like she's trying to remember who is. And then she ended and said, but he's a revolutionary. I'm like, yeah, me too. We just have different idea of what a revolution is. But, um, but then I realized in the, this interrogation session, which were not very funny, now I say it this way because I'm not in one, but they're not funny at all and they're not, I don't recommend it to anybody. Um, in this very frequent, um, um, I had one every two or three days, so it was quite intense. I realized it was also an educational moment that I could have with them. So I started explaining them what performer was versus theater. I was saying to them that our discussion was about gen, gen, genre because they want to perform, I want a performance which everything is open, chaotic, you don't know the audience have a role. And he wanted a traditional theater play where everything was completely script. You have the bad, the good characters, everybody's very clearly who, who character is, which character. But then I realized that I said, okay, maybe I should do something. Maybe I should. Then they released me, the, the Havana Biennial came, and uh, I did something that I called um, doing art for the what if of the yet to come, meaning art that is not reacting to the politics of the moment, but kind of trying to understand politics as a, as a system and trying to guess what is the next step of this system. So many times us as artists will react to news or something, but I wanted to go ahead and see what is the next thing they will do. And I said, okay, the biennial is coming, so they probably will start saying that I'm an awful person and I did something wrong and I probably put a bomb or something like that to make me look bad in the international arena. So I decided to self, um, self, um, self-survey uh, myself during that whole time of the biennial. So I decided to read a book um, of Hannah Arendt called The Origin of Totalitarianism uh, all the, the, for 100 days, for 100 hours. So that's the kind of time where the foreigners are there, like three or four days for the biennial. So I decided to do that, so I put a, a speaker to the, to the street because I could not do anything in the street, but the sound can travel freely. So I was like, great, I got it. So, so I put the sound, I was reading the book with a group of people we read, it was like 50 people who read it. But then what happened is the government brought these workers with hack jammers. 
<laughs> we hike jammers to, of course, I'm not going to fight the sound of the hike jammers. So I basically took a break. <laughs> um, but the thing, and they actually, I always say they did an art piece because they did a kind of a Doris Salcedo piece because <laughs> it's the whole uh, hole on the wall. And it was very funny because they actually say it was not about me, but they cut exactly the size of my house. <laughs> like, they didn't go like, and then I was saying that on international newspapers, so like a few days later they came and did like, one meter extra, like, like, it was very silly. But for me, it was a win because few things. First of all, they had to stop for eating because that's the law. So I was reading at that time the section about collaborating with the police from the book. But also they leave at 5 o'clock or 4.30, so I, I kept talking the whole night. <laughs> so they didn't stop me. But... Um, uh, yeah, so, so this for me is also um, a very important moment because I always react with politicians, to politicians, and in this case they react to art. And I think they had to be very creative, which is very hard for politicians. Sorry if anyone in here is a politician, but it's very hard for them. So I was very, I kind of enjoy it that they were creative. So unfortunately they stopped being creative now. So. But yeah, so basically, for me, political art is art with consequences, which not exactly this, that's not the consequence I mean. Um, but um, it is an art that, that generates a response. That's what political art for me is. So you create a piece that that energy that you have in the work is so strong that people cannot stay still with it. Uh, either because they feel a sense of responsibility or because they get angry or because, I mean, depending what the reaction. So um, one thing that for me is very important is a concept I created uh, a few years ago. Oh, sorry. A concept I created a few years ago that is called political timing specific art. What I mean by that is, in a lot of my career, I had to create my own concepts, not because I think they are better, just for critics to stop, because many times critics think they know everything. So it's good to say, no, you don't know anything. Um, unfortunately, I don't have indigenous words to use, but I created these words. And for me, political timing and specific art is this precisely art that is coming out of these moments that are not yet um, understood by the public. Political moments where things are still information, like when the moment like they announced this Cuba-US relationship, people were completely disoriented. So it is a moment where politicians with the laws or actions are trying to reestablish a new order. And in that process of doing that, they also trying to risk, um, give a new meaning to words that we have always used, to actions we have always done. So this is why I think this is the moment we as artists can enter, because we know very well how to deal with that stuff, meaning and, 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 and so. so. But also I think, um, for me, this statement is very important, because, and this is why I wanted to do the piece at the Tate, because it is very easy for political artists to rebel against things everybody agrees with, like, like massacres in places, or a dictator who somewhere else, or, or, or the homeless policy, etc. But are we 
also, if we are political artists, we also have to rebel against a lot of injustices that we have in our world. And they're very clear happening. So I think that's why um, I wanted uh, to, to also rebel against form as well as these injustices. And part of what I did is, um, let me see because I want, I want, I'm going to stop here because what is the time to stop? What time I start? Ah, I have what? what? 40 minutes. Can I have like seven minutes? Okay, great. Okay, great. So, so and part of, okay, okay, clink. So, so for me, part of this rebellion against the injustices of the art world is all of these things where you see that some people is left behind because maybe they're talking about something is not cool or not interesting or put the institution at risk, or maybe because the form they're using is not the Western accepted form or the art history accepted form. So for me, one of the first acts I do as an artist every time I do a new piece, and believe me, it's very tiring, but that's how I do it, is changing this question that we always ask, what is art? And what I try to ask myself is, what is art for? And this is why I have been working for a long time in uh, this idea of arte util, or art as a tool, or art as a means to, uh, for something else other than art itself. And then I create this, don't worry, I have it here very quickly. I'm not going to talk about it, but this is kind of very quickly, I'm going to show it to you. This is kind of my uh, process of working. And the way I talk about my work always being a double ontology means that it has to work in the political arena as well as in the art arena. If I do something that politically is very engaging but the artists don't think it's interesting, for me it's a failed piece and vice versa. If I do a piece that politicians don't think is interesting or they have to react to, also that's not working. So very quickly, um, I have changed from representation to presentation, so I've been moving um, my work into this um, area um, and also trying to, to have different strategies for my work. And one thing that I have been very conscious, I'm not going to explain each of this because too much, more than seven minutes, but um, one thing that I have realized is I'm very interested in the relation between ethic and aesthetics. And I'm also interested in what is the role of the artist in each of the works I've done, or each of the work we do, as well as the, uh, of the role of the audience. So for me, the relation between ethics and aesthetic is the relationship between the role of the artist and the role of the audience, and how this dynamic happens. So what I have done is I have created this uh, new word that I use, I had a critic saying like, well, what is the art in your work? First of all, none of the work that we know that we like, the performances, they, nobody knew it was art <laughs> at the moment. Like, oh, we were they're just enjoying it, having a, an impactful moment in their life. And then people remember, and then that becomes art. So, But I do a lot of social engagement and political art. So this critic is like, where is the art in all of these boring photos of people together? You know. And I said, well, for me, the art, and I couldn't respond that day, so I get very angry with myself, and I said, I have to have this. So the answer was, um, 
the way in which you split the word aesthetics in Spanish. If you split the word estetica, which is aesthetic in Spanish, you have est, which is Latin for it is, the verb it is, to be, um, and ethics. So that actually was the answer <laughs> for, for that question, which is my work is actually an intention to create a new ethical ecosystem. So that's seven minutes. Thank <laughs> you.